0: The Brake Fix's History of Motorsports series is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center, as well as the Society of Automotive Historians, the Watkins Glen Area Chamber of Commerce, and the Singer family.
1: Truth is the Daughter of Time by Trevor Lister Trevor entered the University of Canterbury on a public service scholarship, graduating with a double degree in physics and mechanical engineering. On graduation, he worked in the Ministry of Transport in the setting and administration of motor vehicle safety standards, primarily on natural gas and LPG vehicle standards. This led to a second bent to a national research and development organization where he was responsible for research on a wider range of alternative motor vehicle fuels. It led also to an international consultancy in that area, including a stint as the New Zealand delegate to the International Natural Gas Vehicles Association. Upon completion of that work, he returned to his foundation, automotive design skills, and his motorsports hobby at which point he became an inspector and certifier on other people's projects, as well as designing, building, and racing his own cars. In semi-retirement, he took up teaching and tutoring pre-apprentice students in mathematics, science, and automotive engineering. In full retirement, he assumed the role of editor of the newsletter of the classic Motor Racing Club of New Zealand. That is when, searching for newsletter stories, he came across the work of Donald Caps and their common interest in old Maseratis. The upshot of working together on the histories of these cars became the main point of the presentation in this symposium. It appears that Maserati in the 1950s identified their competition cars by their engine numbers, not their chassis numbers and that this process allowed for individual cars to have carried more than one identity. This has implications for the provenance of these cars.
2: All right, folks, next up is Trevor Lister. And Trevor's giving a talk at much of the research
3: shared with Don Camps. Truth is the daughter of time. Good morning to uh, all my old friends in the, in the Glen. the been a while since I was last there, especially if uh, Donald Caps is, uh, is in the audience. A big hello, Donald. Thank you very much for your support over the years. I will be talking today on what might sound on a little strange approach to vehicle identity, old Maserati specifically in the 1950s. I'll be looking at the uh, uh, different ways in which a vehicle can be identified and what that might mean for the provenance of the vehicle. A little story perhaps about an Englishman, an Italian and an American who met in a bar and started discussing uh, identity of the vehicles. The Englishman would say, all of chassis is the most important part of the vehicle, and it's the chassis number that sets the identity for the vehicle, and it's that identity from that point on until the day it gets put on scrappy. The Italian would say something different. Lenzo Ferrari did back in the 1960s. He said, I don't sell cars. He said, I sell engines. The car is only there. He says, I throw it in for free because something's got to hold the engine in. Quite a different approach entirely. The American was probably Bob because he was a. Uh, the, the story I've got here is kind of coming from a Ford perspective. Henry in the 1930s would identify the vehicles coming down the production line were identified according to their engine number. Imagine yourself at a very busy plant. The engine has just been passed through its uh, mm-hmm. pre run testing, it's just about to be placed in the vehicle. It has a gearbox attached to it. The gearbox gets stamped with the engine number. Then bodywork gets applied. And just before the bodywork gets done up nice and tight, the uh, engine number is stamped on the frame. Nice and simple. The engine sets the identity of the car. A little further on that one and say that, and, and that's really, there is a wee twist if it's a, uh, Enzo talked about production cars as well as race cars, but at Maserati, if a engine and a race car was changed, then the identity of the vehicle was changed to match the engine number. And as the engine number didn't just set the identity when it first rolled with the production line, it was quite capable of changing and giving a different vehicle identity as the vehicle was raced, even race to race. Chosen this car as an illustration of what happened at Maserati because it's a very rich car in terms of its background and its provenance. If you look at it on the slide, it looks like a uh, pretty much like a standard 1950s Maserati Formula One car. But in fact, it is not. It started off as a two-litre Formula 2 car, and it had an identity number given by its engine of 2038. That was its truest identity. The very early part of the 1954 Formula 1 racing season, the cars were in Argentina. Maserati had a lot of orders for its new 250F Formula 1 car, but unfortunately it could not uh, supply uh, every customer at the same race. So some of the Formula 2 cars were adapted to Formula 1 specification by putting a bigger engine in and uh, running them as Formula 1 cars. This is one of those cars. When it got its Formula 1 engine, replacing the old Formula 2 one, its identity changed to match the new, larger engine. In that guise, this car was known as 2510, and that wasn't the end of its identity. The following year, it was bodywork revised, which is why you see the, the lovely yeah, 250F type bodywork on it in the photograph. Its engine was changed once more. Now got engine 2518, and it took on identity 2518. So if we trace this car right through, we see uh, three identities all set by the engine that it was carrying at the time. And it doesn't stop there. The interims, there were four of them all together. They all had that same pattern of giving up their old Formula 2 number and adopting the uh, Formula 1 engine number. Each and every one of them all had exactly the same pattern. So i um, comfortable looking at the interims to say that, yes, that's Harry um, guy. The Maserati was obviously uh, identifying according to engine number. And if the engine went to another vehicle, it would carry its identity, take the engine identity with it so far so good except in england they didn't do that in england there was a lot of interest at in formula one of course so it's just getting uh, to the point where england was ready to start dominating formula one in a year or two's time and the uh, english commentators were very keen on pushing for the chassis to be the one which identified the car this might be so in england but it's not so everywhere else. Unfortunately, the English men did most of the commentaries. Quite frankly, they did it according to the English pattern. That chassis number determined the identity. The English pattern is strict and rigid. It says that's the identity, it's the chassis, and that's all that matters, and it will always be forever. But that approach is no good whatsoever in a set of circumstances where the engine number will change and the identity will change and a vehicle may carry three or four different identities in its lifetime. Or the same engine may turn up on three or four cars or more. Which means that when we look at the old commentaries and the identities, we now have another question to ask in terms of provenance. And that question is not, is this the car you think you've got? The question now becomes, does this car have the background that you said it was. Is it really the car that Fangio used on a particular race on a particular day? Because if it's had multiple identities, we're now going to have to say which identity on that day was the one that was used, and that's the implications for provenance. This car is a uh, Maserati 258 with a uh, very interesting uh, background and provenance. It is actually the uh, third car of three to carry engine and identity two, five, Four. The first car to do so was uh, one of the interim Formula 1 cars that we saw before. When the customer car was ready, the full Formula 1 car was ready, the interim was sent back to the factory, and the brand-new 250S was uh, given to Prince Boer, and he had a great time racing it in the 50s, except he only raced it one and a half races. He was over at the British Grand Prix and made a deal with the BRM team to... Uh, have a second driver drive his car as he, Birra, could not do so because of his illness. Halfway through the race, he came in, the drivers changed positions. Uh, the BRM driver took the uh, car out, and within two or three laps, had uh, managed to roll it put it over on its lid and damaged the uh, the car quite a lot. The unfortunate part was that Burrow now had a, uh, a race meeting the following weekend, which would have a lot of starting money, but he had no car to race. So the deal was made with the BRM team that they would swap the engines and the identities into the cars. The damaged one would be retained by BRM and Burrow would go away with the old BRM team car. And that's what he would race. So it turned out nobody said anything about it for a long, long time. The car itself was photographed outside a museum in New Zealand. Came into New Zealand as car 2509, which was the BRM team car. But it wasn't 2509 at all. Underneath it, it was 2504. We checked this out a few years back um, by putting a tape measure over it. There was a difference in builds between the two. 2584 was a very early car, and and it had a slightly uh, shorter wheelbase, and we measured it up, and sure enough, the uh, car masquerading as 2509 in New Zealand for many, many years. It's actually 2504. Third Mm -hmm. of the cars to carry that number, uh, and also one-fourth one later on, also carried the, the engine number 2504, and was also known as 2504. So that's four vehicles, four engines, one identity, 2504. Oh, this rearrangement of identity numbers every time an engine was changed has been around for a long time. The old English commentaries actually noticed that the changes had taken place. They would note, for instance, the car 2512, at least I'm pretty sure it was 2512, turning up to race, say 2514 uh, or something uh, that uh, would note that there was a change in identity, but gave no clue whatsoever or any thought to why that may have been so. To answer that question, we go to Donald's database. It's a very, very large database, very well laid out. I've got to thank Donald for giving me access to that database a long time ago. Turns up uh, on his emails one day and says, do you mind if I muck around with your database? And uh, to Don's credit, he said, yeah, go right ahead. And what Donald had done is captured the engine numbers for each vehicle, each car in each race. And when his database was put alongside the older commentaries, there was a one-to-one correspondence between what the older commentaries had just noted as, this car raced as 251 trull. For instance, Donald's database showed that on this race, yes, it did run as 2514 and that it also carried engine 2514 for that race. So we were able basically to take all of the old puzzles of identity for the 250 and as a side issue, every other Maserati as well, that was traced in the fifties and uh, solve a lot of old puzzles and uh, problems, which had found their way into the early commentary, So we are now quite happy to say that Maserati identified its race cars according to the engine that was in them at the time. As you have a look at this document, you'll see on Don's side notes on the uh, right-hand side of the page. Every now and again, he will note with engine, with engine 2514, for instance, he's following car 2512, which is a uh, very interesting little thing in its own right. To go with, if you wish to uh, continue this with us, we'd be very, very happy uh, to have you do so. Because the uh, the more attention we put to it, the uh, more accurate we get with our data and our conclusions. There is a uh, set of papers to go with this presentation, and they uh, are available from Bob if you wish, or Bob will give you an email for me, and you can get them direct. Have a look at the whole thing, and but it's only seventeen pages long, and we have got to get there. Dom, nice to see you. How are you going? i'm the
4: one who put this together so let me try to explain it to you i am a trained professional historian so when i started seeing anomalies in data that i'm digging out of various sources from the archives and so forth and trev was pretty clever to pick up with this with me because everybody else thought i was crazy and and a complete nutcase let me explain it this way there is how the rest of us do things then there's the way the italian Automakers do things. Maserati, and I think Travis pretty well hit this. They looked at the motore as how they tracked these cars that rolled through the racing shop. When it came in, they pulled the engine. They did all the little maintenance on the chassis, and when it was time to roll it out, they put whatever engine was ready in that car. Now, originally, the chassis and the motor all pretty well matched, but Engines blow up, you build new engines, but you don't always build a new chassis, or you build a new chassis, put an old engine in it, that sort of thing. Dino, Gino, and Luigi, all working in the racing shop, tracked it by the engines. It's kind of like those of you who can do a calculator versus those of us who are completely baffled by them because we do scientific notation. It's that different. They were not like the English, as Trevor pointed out. Back when it all starts, it's all matches. As I started digging and digging and digging and digging, was here for like 2512. Okay, the English would call it car 2512. Well, when it got engine 2514 in it to the racing shop and to Alphacini Alferi Maserati, the entrant, it became a different car, 2514. As The longest stayed in Italy, not a problem. But what happens when it crosses a border? paperwork so to make the paperwork match whatever the parts in the engine it's easier to fix because it's all just paperwork or you put a little tiny metal strip over the actual number of the chassis or the engine as the case may be everyone else says that's 2512 but to the factory it's 2514 all their paperwork says 2514 all the automotive historians and people tracking you know doing the chassis colt checking all the blocks on that it's a different car so that's basically what trev and i came to the conclusion it's like there's a problem here. And everyone thinks Trev and I were out of sync because they didn't think, in this case, the Maserati. But when Trev went back and started looking at the history, of previous cars we found the same thing wasn't just the 250 f's it was other cars prior to that so what we're basically saying is identity as travis i think made very clear is not always what you think it is so that's one of the little things you have to watch when you're a historian particularly if you're an automobile racing historian is sometimes what you're given isn't necessarily what the case is it's according who you talk to an automobile, normally, as Trev correctly pointed out in the first slide, it has an identity as whatever the VIN number or the chassis number was. But for the Italians, they thought a little differently. The motore was what they created. Did I do okay there, Trev?
3: You're doing fine.
4: Now that you're all confused... Don't laugh. We have fought this battle, Trev and I, for what now, better part of a decade, something like yeah, that.
3: Yeah, uh, th- that would be close to it. And uh, also, Don, uh, as you say, people saying to me that it cannot possibly be true, which is just the few you need to light if you want me to prove something.
4: I have a good friend who just got a Lifetime Achievement Award in England for his writings, this guy named Doug Nye. And Doug, you and I go back a long way. We've actually had Doug here at the Research Center. It's 20 years ago now but he is reluctant to accept this because see boy he's a pommy and that's how they do things it's everything's the chassis but when i talk to people in italy they go so mm-hmm. makes sense a motori. motori. no 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 it's a motori. so it's a little different and it's just like anything else when you switch over to certain types of history in nationalities, you have to be very careful. We may all agree that on the auction block, it's 2512, but really, if it's got the engine 2514 in it, that's what the mechanics called it. So that's really all Trev and I are saying. Give us a chance to do this. It's not how everybody operates, but then again, I'm helpless. I do scientific notation. You give me a regular little calculator, and I'm completely helpless because that's how the mine worked, it is how they worked. And they didn't print off a copy. How the things, what about two centimeters thick now, three centimeters, four centimeters thick, the log book? So there's a lot of effort that goes into this. And we hope you get an understanding that identity, particularly in racing, is malleable, very malleable. You could see Richard Petty in Car forty three, but Car forty three one season is not Car forty three the next season, et cetera, et cetera. But it's always want to you, Car forty three. So that's part of what Got this going. Is it? It is changeable. It is malleable. Anyway, now that we confuse you all, anything you want to uh, throw in there, Trevor?
3: Thanks, Don. As Don has said, the thing that we are working on turned to be much, much larger than just the 250S. The little internal recalibration that the engine will set the chassis numbers, the identity number for a particular race, applies right across the board. Picked it up in all sorts of places. Every time we have a puzzle, we've managed to uh, solve it by tracing and chasing the engine. Whether that be a sports car, Formula One car, or even a 1930s or a very early 1928s, comes down to the same thing. Engine equals identity, Well at least for that day. Thanks, Don.
4: That's our story, and we are definitely sticking to it, okay? Any, uh, any, any so, questions for us? Yeah, we've got a couple. Blast away.
0: Don, I feel like the reason that Doug Nye doesn't want to commit to accepting this research has nothing to do with his nationality. And everything to do with the fact that Doug Nye is retained by auction companies to confirm the identity and the history of valuable old racing cars. And when yourself and Trevor presented this research a couple of years ago at a conference that we were both at, I happened to have lunch with a very well-known classic car and racing car broker. And I said to him, dude, what do you think of this? And he said, well, it's all a load of bollocks because to try and unpick the identity of all of these cars, it would destroy his credibility with people who he's had business relationships with for years and years and years. So I'm not saying that it's fine that that's the attitude, but what I am saying is that There's an awful lot of money and an awful lot of water that's gone under the bridge with a lot of these cars. And it would be very risky for his professional position for somebody like Doug Nye to say, you know what, all these Maserati 250Fs that we've identified as being, this is the Sterling Moss car, this is the Berra car. We were suddenly to throw all of that up in the air and leave everybody feeling as faintly confused and dissatisfied as we're feeling at the moment about the identity of these cars, there's almost no upside. I feel it's a little bit like when colleagues of mine at the university proposed systems to better identify whether or not a particular car was authentic or not, pushback that we had from within the old car community was, you know what, we don't want to know if it's inauthentic. I want to believe that Sterling Moss owned my car and raced my car. It's in nobody's interest to do all of the research simply to cast doubt on the identity of this particular car.
4: It was not an easy concept at first to accept because we are all been drummed and this is how it is. It was only those little pesky things called facts. And this was the key. If you dig and you dig, and that's what we do. By dumb luck, I made acquaintance of a guy named Barry Hopkirk up in, uh, in British Columbia, Vancouver who had an interest in the 250Fs and was a mania, basically. And he had all this chassis numbers that he had created because some cars you could count the louvers and some you could do the dents and all this sort of thing. It was particular to that chassis. However, he also had gotten, by accident the numbers of the engines in those cars. And what I started noticing, something that Barry just didn't quite get, he thought I was nuts like everybody else, was wait a minute, you're calling it twenty-five twelve, but the factory's calling it twenty-five fourteen, and everybody else is calling it t- because the chassis is twenty-five twelve. But the Italians are calling it that. So what's wrong? But you're correct. The commercial interest in changing all this for it, it would only be basically Maserati, Bondurant, Bondini, a bunch of the Enies, if you will, that did this. Remember, Ferrari started off that way. And then, because he had so many English customers, that it was much easier. Because if you ever look at the Ferrari list, there is the Tolari, the, the uh, Valero, the uh, chassis. But if the engine's different, it's noted. It's always noted. And a lot of times you'll find on the paperwork, the engine and the Ferrari paperwork. This is a fascinating topic that I never dreamed I'd ever be dealing with. But identity became an issue simply because it was so confusing.
2: I just want to say that I think it's a little unfair to uh, paint uh, strictly Italian automakers for this kind of confusion. Doug and I I had a a long and interesting session together on the identity of Lotus 19s. As most of us may know, a certain English manufacturer of uh, cars named Lotus, last name was Chapman, had a tendency to want to change things around. And there were all sorts of good and sometimes bad reasons. Sometimes they needed to get it across the border. And the the one that was on the paperwork had one chassis number. And the, the one they had in the truck was had another one. So they changed it. In the case of Lotus 19s, it is truly murky. I got involved with a car that claimed to be the first, that Moss drove to two very successful races, first at Riverside and then at Monterey there are three people in the world who claim absolutely that they own that car. The joke is that the car was actually comprehensively destroyed in an accident in New Zealand, and the remains of the car came back in a suitcase that went into the baggage container of the jet that it came back on. So it's a fascinating topic and one that's Full of all sorts of problems. I've been yelled at any number of different times about uh, that sort of thing. So good for you guys for doing it. It's fascinating. And and also, of course, as we are hearing, it it also relates a lot to not only value, but really what the history is. And something that sometimes it's just going to be too murky to dig out. But there it is.
4: It always boils down to one phrase. Pity the poor historian. We can only do what we do. We do the facts. Again, Trev did a, a tremendous amount of work, and again, Trev and I go back a long ways on this, and we appreciate you giving us the patience to, to put up with it.
1: Thank you so much for doing this, and I, I was curious if the logbook extends to any of the French marks, specifically Delahaye is something I've been looking into, and I'm encountering some of the same issues.
4: There are others who have gone back and replicated this, because one of the things we do are a historian, it's different than like Doug. Doug keeps a lot of information. He holds it and which is what authors do, what historians do, until it gets published. I've thrown this information out there some time ago. I said on a lot of information from Barry and another good friend of mine, David McKenzie, who did a lot of work, who helped unknowingly find the anomalies, because that's what we look for. We look for anomalies and helped me find some of these anomalies, even though he was not sure what I was looking for at first. There are a number of people who come around to this. I, I think they basically still very quiet about it, exactly what John pointed out, because then you start looking at Alfa Romeo. You start looking at these other companies as well, Seat, Osaka, and so forth. A lot of them initially did it identity one way but because of their customer base they're not stupid they understand how the system works and they found that out real quick that don't confuse people all trev and i do is confuse people because we look at the facts and we don't worry about the other stuff thank goodness because i would make a horrible car dealer tell you what it is sort of thing
3: I just have a warning that none of this applies to American race cars, up at least through 1980. Numbers per miller cars have been lost. Frank Curtis and Watson numbered cars, and I have the bill sheets for most of the offenhauser engines. But they changed engines without making any note at all. If an engine blew up, they put another one in, and so what? Actually, at one year in the 50s, there were more offenhauser engines entered at Indy than had been built by Meyer and Drake and often has it because people took blown up engines and bought some parts and put them together. So you can't run the numbers. You have to look at number of louvers and wells on the chassis and identify them.
4: And I should give some credit to Gordon because that was one of the anomalies that I began coming back to. Is said this can't be unique. And you look at a lot of American racing cars, dirt track cars, etc, they didn't have an identity except number fifty-two, number eighty-eight. That was basically it, and you're right. When you had pointed out, said, you know, I'm not insane because Gordon has found the same thing on the, off the engines, and we said we found that some of these engines, when they were broken, they got thrown. Chassis were, you know, like modern. There's a couple of McLarens. What, uh, there must be like 15 of one chassis number because it went to, It's ridiculous. Identity is an open topic. Have at it, as far as I'm concerned. Thank you very much. We appreciate it all. Thank you, crap.
2: Thank you, Don and Trevor. We could stay here till midnight, probably. Trevor sent me pages and pages of documentation, which he said pass along to whoever asks for it. So I have a PDF that's, I don't know what, 30, 40 pages long, if you want it. And then you email me that you want it. It's as easy easy as that. Okay, Trevor, thank you much.
3: Thank everybody in your team, uh, right down to getting the invite to uh, present to Hi. you guys. Okay. Uh, appreciate it, did it, and, and thank you very much. Just to uh, Finish on there, Bob. I have a friend who looked at what i had done, and he said, what are you worried about? He said that Croyle, uh, the John, Paul, George, and Ringo would make no difference as long as you could track them, which I think it's Donald's point. There's two different ways of tracking. We'll bring them together. So thank okay. you thank you all okay. very much, and right. um, see you next time around. Thanks, Trevor.
1: This episode is brought to you in part by the International Motor Racing Research Center. Its charter is to collect, share, and preserve the history of motorsports, spanning continents, eras, and race series. The center's collection embodies the speed, drama, and camaraderie of amateur and professional motor racing throughout the world. The center welcomes serious researchers and casual fans alike to share stories of race drivers, race series, and race cars captured on their shelves and walls and brought to life through a regular calendar of public lectures and special events. To learn more about the center, visit www.racingarchives.org. This episode is also brought to you by the Society of Automotive Historians. They encourage research into any aspect of automotive history. The SAH actively supports the compilation and preservation of papers, organizational records, print ephemera and images to safeguard, as well as to broaden and deepen the understanding of motorized, wheeled land transportation through the modern age and into the future. For more information about the SAH, visit www.autohistory.org. We hope you enjoyed another awesome episode of Breakfix Fix Podcast, brought to you by Grand Torrey Motorsports. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or get involved, be sure to follow us on all social media platforms at Grand Touring Motorsports. And if you'd like to learn more about the content of this episode, be sure to check out the follow-on article at gtmotorsports.org. We remain a commercial-free and no annual fees organization through our sponsors, but also through the generous support of our fans, families, and friends through Patreon. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can get access to more behind-the-scenes action, additional Pit Stop minisodes, and other VIP goodies, as well as keeping our team of creators fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, Gumby Bears, and Monster. So consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without you, none of this would be possible.